This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 40 Castles and Culture. Baton Rouge was clothed in flowers like a bride. No, much more so, like a greenhouse. For we were in the absolute South now, no modifications, no compromises, no halfway measures. The magnolia trees in the capital grounds were lovely and fragrant with their dense, rich foliage and huge snowball blossoms. The scent of the flower is very sweet, but you want distance on it because it is so powerful. They are not good bedroom blossoms. They might suffocate one in his sleep. We were certainly in the south at last, for here the sugar region begins, and the plantations, vast green levels, with sugar-mill and negro quarters clustered together in the middle distance, were in view. And there was a tropical sun overhead, and a tropical swelter in the air. And at this point also begins the pilot's paradise, a wide river hence to New Orleans, abundance of water from shore to shore, and no bars, snags, sawyers, or wrecks in his road. Sir Walter Scott is probably responsible for the capital building, for it is not conceivable that this little sham castle would ever have been built if he had not run the people mad, a couple of generations ago, with his medieval romances. The South has not yet recovered from the debilitating influence of his books. Admiration of his fantastic heroes and their grotesque chivalry doings and romantic juvenilities still survives here, in an atmosphere in which is already perceptible the wholesome and practical nineteenth-century smell of cotton factories and locomotives. And traces of its inflated language and other windy humbuggeries survive along with it. It is pathetic enough that a whitewashed castle with turrets and things, materials all ungenuine within and without, pretending to be what they are not, should ever have been built in this otherwise honorable place. But it is much more pathetic to see this architectural falsehood undergoing restoration and perpetuation in our day, when it would have been so easy to let dynamite finish what a charitable fire began, and then devote this restoration money to the building of something genuine. Baton Rouge has no patent on imitation castles, however, and no monopoly of them. Here is a picture from the advertisement of the Female Institute of Columbia, Tennessee. The following remark is from the same advertisement. The Institute building has long been famed as a model of striking and beautiful architecture. Visitors are charmed with its resemblance to the old castles of song and story, with its towers and turreted walls and ivy-mantled porches. Keeping school in a castle is a romantic thing, as romantic as keeping hotel in a castle. By itself the imitation castle is doubtless harmless, and well enough, but as a symbol and breeder and sustainer of maudlin middle-age romanticism here in the midst of the plainest and sturdiest and infinitely greatest and worthiest of all the centuries the world has seen, it is necessarily a hurtful thing and a mistake. Here is an extract from the prospectus of a Kentucky female college. Female college sounds well enough, but since the phrasing it in that unjustifiable way was done purely in the interest of brevity, it seems to me that she-college would have been still better, 
because shorter, and means the same thing, that is, if either phrase means anything at all. The President is Southern by birth, by rearing, by education, and by sentiment. The teachers are all Southern in sentiment, and with the exception of those born in Europe were born and raised in the South. Believing the Southern to be the highest type of civilization this continent has seen, the young ladies are trained according to the Southern ideas of delicacy, refinement, womanhood, religion, and propriety. Hence we offer a first-class female college for the South, and solicit Southern patronage. Footnote. Illustrations of it thoughtlessly omitted by the advertiser. Knoxville, Tennessee, October 19. This morning, a few minutes after ten o'clock, General Joseph A. Mabry, Thomas O'Connor, and Joseph A. Mabry, Jr., were killed in a shooting affray. The difficulty began yesterday afternoon by General Mabry attacking Major O'Connor and threatening to kill him. This was at the fairgrounds, and O'Connor told Mabry that it was not the place to settle their difficulties. Mabry then told O'Connor he should not live. It seems that Mabry was armed and O'Connor was not. The cause of the difficulty was an old feud about the transfer of some property from Mabry to O'Connor. Later in the afternoon Mabry sent word to O'Connor that he would kill him on sight. This morning Major O'Connor was standing in the door of the Mechanics National Bank, of which he was president. General Mabry and another gentleman walking down Gay Street on the opposite side from the bank. O'Connor stepped into the bank, got a shotgun, took deliberate aim at General Mabry, and fired. Mabry fell dead, being shot in the left side. As he fell, O'Connor fired again, the shot taking effect in Mabry's thigh. O'Connor then reached into the bank and got another shotgun. About this time Joseph A. Mabry, Jr., son of General Mabry, came rushing down the street, unseen by O'Connor, until within forty feet, when the young man fired a pistol, the shot taking effect in O'Connor's right breast, passing through the body near the heart. The instant Mabry shot, O'Connor turned and fired, the load taking effect in young Mabry's right breast and side. Mabry fell pierced with twenty buckshot, and almost instantly O'Connor fell dead without a struggle. Mabry tried to rise, but fell back dead. The whole tragedy occurred within two minutes, and neither of the three spoke after he was shot. General Mabry had about thirty buckshot in his body. A bystander was painfully wounded in the thigh with a buckshot, and another was wounded in the arm. Four other men had their clothing pierced by buckshot. The affair caused great excitement, and Gay Street was thronged with thousands of people. General Mabry and his son Joe were acquitted only a few days ago of the murder of Moses Lusby and Don Lusby, father and son, whom they killed a few weeks ago. Will Mabry was killed by Don Lusby last Christmas. Major Thomas O'Connor was president of the Mechanics National Bank here, and was the wealthiest man in the state. Associated Press Telegram One day last month Professor Sharp of Somerville, Tennessee, female college, a quiet and gentlemanly man, was told that his brother-in-law, a Captain Burton, had threatened to kill him. Burton, it seems, had already killed one man and driven his knife into another. The professor armed himself with a double-barreled shotgun, started out in search of his brother-in-law, found him playing billiards in a saloon, and blew his brains out. The Memphis Avalanche reports that the professor's course met with pretty general approval in the community, 
knowing that the law was powerless in the actual condition of public sentiment to protect him, he protected himself. About the same time two young men in North Carolina quarreled about a girl, and hostile messages were exchanged. Friends tried to reconcile them, but had their labor for their pains. On the twenty-fourth the young men met in the public highway. One of them had a heavy club in his hand, the other an axe. The man with the club fought desperately for his life, but it was a hopeless fight from the first. A well-directed blow sent his club whirling out of his grasp, and the next moment he was a dead man. About the same time two highly connected young Virginians, clerks in a hardware store at Charlottesville, while skylarking, came to blows. Peter Dick threw pepper in Charles Rhodes' eyes. Rhodes demanded an apology. Dick refused to give it and it was agreed that a duel was inevitable. But a difficulty arose. The parties had no pistols, and it was too late at night to procure them. One of them suggested that butcher-knives would answer the purpose, and the other accepted the suggestion. The result was that Rhodes fell to the floor with a gash in his abdomen that may or may not prove fatal. If Dick has been arrested, the news has not reached us. He expressed deep regret and we are told by a Staunton correspondent of the Philadelphia Press that every effort has been made to hush the matter up. Extracts from the Public Journals What! Warder Ho! The man that can blow so complacent a blast as that probably blows it from a castle. From Baton Rouge to New Orleans the great sugar plantations border both sides of the river all the way and stretch their league-wide levels back to the dim forest walls of bearded cypress in the rear. Shores lonely no longer, plenty of dwellings all the way on both banks, standing so close together for long distances that the broad river lying between the two rows becomes a sort of spacious street, a most homelike and happy-looking region, and now and then you see a pillared and porticoed great manor-house embowered in trees. Here is testimony of one or two of the procession of foreign tourists that filed along here half a century ago. Mrs. Trollope says, The unbroken flatness of the banks of the Mississippi continued unvaried for many miles above New Orleans. But the graceful and luxuriant palmetto, the dark and noble ilex, and the bright orange were everywhere to be seen, and it was many days before we were weary of looking at them. Captain Basil Hall the district of country, which lies adjacent to the Mississippi in the lower parts of Louisiana, is everywhere thickly peopled by sugar-planters, whose showy houses, gay piazzas, trig-gardens, and numerous slave villages, all clean and neat, gave an exceedingly thriving air to the river scenery. All the procession paint the attractive picture in the same way. The descriptions of fifty years ago do not need to have a word changed in order to exactly describe the same region as it appears today, except as to the trigness of the houses. The whitewash is gone from the negro cabins now, and many, possibly most, of the big mansions, once so shining white, have worn out their paint and have a decayed, neglected look. It is the blight of the war. Twenty-one years ago everything was trim and trig, and bright along the coast, just as it had been in 1827, as described by those tourists. Unfortunate tourists! People humbugged them with stupid and silly lies, and then laughed at them for believing and printing the same. 
They told Mrs. Trollope that the alligators, or crocodiles as she calls them, were terrible creatures, and backed up the statement with a blood-curling account of how one of these slandered reptiles crept into a squatter cabin one night, and ate up a woman and five children. The woman by herself would have satisfied any ordinarily impossible alligator, but no, these liars must make him gorge the five children besides. One would not imagine that jokers of this robust breed would be sensitive, but they were. It is difficult at this day to understand, and impossible to justify, the reception which the book of the grave, honest, intelligent, gentle, manly, charitable, well-meaning Captain Basil Hall got. End of chapter 40